In a time of social media-hyped partisan scream fests, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that plenty of people on the other side aren't stupid or evil. I'm political scientist Mike Baranowski, and my podcast, The Politics Guys, is built on the belief that for democracy to work for everyone, we have to be willing to really listen to each other and have meaningful conversations about where and why we differ. I hope you'll join me and my intellectually and ideologically diverse group of co-hosts as we work to understand our differences and seek common ground. You can find us at politicsguys.com or in your podcast app. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Our guest this week is Kas Muda, who is a political scientist uh, based at the University of Georgia, where he's the Stanley Wade Shelton UGAF Professor of International Affairs and a Distinguished Research Professor. So as you might guess, he's a a fairly well-known scholar in his field, which is broadly speaking um, the study of populism and the far right. Uh, Koss recently visited Penn State to deliver the keynote address for the Populism, Piety, and Patriotism Conference, uh, which, Chris, you were instrumental in organizing and leading. And as part of that, uh, he gave a keynote lecture on religion and populism. But for this interview, we talked about populism more broadly and why it seems to be ascendant in so many different places around the world right now. And that's really, I think if you've Take a step back and think about it, Chris. There are lots of places where you know these these leaders that are all kind of 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 a piece as far as their their rhetoric and and, and what they're pushing seem to be gaining rhetorical power and also political power and political power. That's right, and and that's really why we want to do the conference, right? Because um, populism isn't you know all that new. But it is striking how ascended it is right now and also how widespread, right? You have um, people in very different countries, very different circumstances who are, and for that matter, different languages, cultures, and religions all talking very similarly about you know, what the problem is and what I, the political leader, am going to do about it. And, and that is important. Interesting and important and, and frankly, a little scary, too. But so we decided to have this conference. And, you know, the first name that came up in terms of a keynote was uh, was Kasmudi, because there's nobody. If you're going to write about populism, you just can't avoid him. So the other part is not just what is it and why is it ascendant, but what it's not. I think that most people think about popu- populist And they think about particular characters, charismatic characters that seem to kind of bring out, in this case, like the kind of, uh, I don't want to say the worst in people, but brings out a a certain (laughs) element that seems to be a similar element across across contexts. And so in this way, I'm really glad that we brought him to kind of think about what are the patterns, what Mm -hmm. are the features, and that... Uh, it's not just about personality. It's not just about charisma and it's not just about strategy, but we can think more about this in terms of ideology. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with that, then we have kind of a more capacious way to understand it in a more nuanced way. Too. Right. And, and more precise, too, because you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, there are people who talk about uh, Vladimir Putin as being a populist. And that's just that's just not accurate. Mm-hmm. So right. let's just talk about, you know, what it is, you know, in a in a sentence. Um, populism is the politics of the people uh, against the corrupt elite. And um, and both of those groups are defined. They're understood to be unified and have the same objectives. And, you know, Koss says that the distinction between the two is fundamentally moral. So the, the people are understood to be decent, hardworking, to be committed to traditional values, and the elites are all corrupt. And they're looking to, uh, ex- to uh, you know, to achieve uh, power in order to pursue their own selfish, greedy ends. I think that's pretty, pretty pithy summation. Would you agree? Yeah, right. So then if we kind of add on the ideology component of it, we think about political ideology as a system of beliefs values, ideas that shape an individual's or group's kind of way of understanding of like who should get what, where power should lie, right? These have ramifications for policy. These have ramifications for what goals we should set, what um, what the good life is, um, who should get what, and so on and so forth. So again, this kind of, you know, this idea that we typically see it as like, hey, it's it's the good people against the bad elites. It's not just that, but it moves towards, you know, policy ramifications about, you know, material, real, you know, allocation of resources. I mean, you know, there, <laughs> I think what, what Koss would say is that, yes, it's an ideology, but it's not merely an ideology. Mm-hmm. It is also a strategy. And, and so, and that's kind of constitutive of politics generally, right? That you all, you always have this kind of understanding of the way the world works and how the world should be. And then you use that to uh, create a constituency and mobilize that constituency towards, you know, political ends. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that in many cases, the the policy agenda that follows when, when these people become ascendant, when these populist leaders become ascendant, isn't always populist. It isn't necessarily direct right. towards their well-being. That's it, right. It, it's often, and what we see now frequently, is people are using um, power to um, – to cement their own power, right? So, right. so they they use their uh, political standing to undermine minority rights, freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something that you see repeatedly in um, when populist leaders like M- Modi in India and Orban in Hungary. Um, you 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 just kind of um, you know they have the power. They found this avenue to power. And, you know, I'm, I'm certain that 
you know, just like <laughs> just like any politician, yes, they believe it, but also they're going to frame it in a way that is more likely to be successful politically. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and w- I think we'll hear this um, from Kass is that even then it's more complex because the, the examples that you're giving are right-wing examples. Right. And that there are also um, left examples of populism, and that looks s- different, right? And so one of the ways that he describes populism then is a thin-centered ideology that can be sutured with other um, kinds of frames, kinds of references. It could be nationalism. It could be chauvinism. It could be religion. It could be class. And I think we'll also get to in the interview um, why this matters for democracy, um, particularly as it relates to liberal democracy and the tension between liberalism and populism. So lots of good stuff here. Let's get now to the interview. Kasmudo, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So um, we're going to talk about populism and some of the things related to it, um, which has long been uh, one of your areas of study. And I, I know in your work, you break it down into three core concepts, the people, the elite, and the general will. So as a way of getting into it, I thought maybe we could take those one by one and talk about each of those elements and how they all come together to form a definition of populism. So let's start with the people. So I think it's uh, important that like almost every definition of populism will have the struggle between the people and the elite in it. And I think what's important to note is that in my definition, the people are seen as homogenous and the elite are seen as homogenous, which means that the people are seen as sharing exactly the same values and interests. All people do, right? And similarly, all elite have that. And the second part is that the distinction between the people and the elite is moral. And so it's not about how much money you have, it's not about even whether you have a formal position of power, It is whether you're pure of heart or whether you're corrupt. And so the people, all people, are pure. And at the same time, all the elite are corrupt. And that is is the main distinction between the two. And that is obviously a construction. Like the people as such do not exist. And that is sometimes used as a criticism of, well, I mean, populism isn't real, but the nation doesn't exist. Class doesn't exist. All of the major collectivisms in politics are constructions, and and the populists use the people versus the elite. And have those conceptions of who the people are and who the elite are remained consistent? over time or do do they do they change either from place to place or as you go throughout history i think both um obviously the people are always good and there are some things that are universally seen as good such as hard working or truthful uh, and so you will find those everywhere but at the same time if you look at in time initially the people were the the farmers because that was 
the bulk of, let's say, the non-elite. Now, of course, in many countries, farmers are only like 2 3% or something. And so later it became more the worker. <clears throat> and today, as we are in a society where kind of an, a vague middle class is um, the largest group, it is classless in a sense. And so you do see that over time, the people are constructed differently, but also cross-nationally, cross-regionally. And um, Ernesto Laclau, who is a famous scholar of populism, who has a very different understanding of it than, than me, has, has talked about the people as an empty, uh, as an empty vessel. <clears throat> and that is to a certain extent true, but not completely. Because if you want to be successful as a populist, you cannot describe the people in ways that do not resonate. So if you are here in the US, you want to be an important populist. You cannot describe the people as Muslim. Right? You cannot describe them as um, nihilistic or whatever else there is that doesn't resonate with a large group of people. So populists always describe the people in line with generally a broader self-definition of it. Right. So if we think about in the American context, it evokes, you know, maybe images of, of patriotism or love of country or this nostalgic idea of what the country, what was, what, what the country used to be that has a lot of different things wrapped up in it. Yes. And also what is important in the U.S., for some reason, although probably the largest group of Americans live in subcultures, uh, or sorry, in suburban settings, <coughs> suburban settings never feature, not in, mm -hmm. in series, no, <laughs> not in the self-definition of the people. And at the same time, the U.S. traditionally has this kind of anti-urban this fear of the city, this anti-urban sentiment. So the people here comes from the heartland, and the heartland is always rural. It's also white, but that's implicit to it, right? And so, whereas in the Netherlands, that will be different because it's a very urbanized country, and the rural part is kind of seen as the other part. So in, in that way, it, it always reflects and, and stays close to self-understandings of the targeted mm -hmm. group. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the people, we've talked about the elite. What about this business of the general will? So the general will has two elements. On the one end, it again uh, references this homogenous understanding of the people. And the general will is a term used by Rousseau in a very similar type of way, although, of course, much more nuanced and complex. But the idea is that the people have one will. But at the same time, by saying that they want politics to be in line with the general will of the people, there is also, at the most basic element, a democratic element to populism. Mm -hmm. And we're talking here about populism in theory. Mm -hmm. The fact that that doesn't always pan out in reality, we know from all kinds of ideologies, right? But the core of populism is that they claim to govern in line with the general will of the people. Mm -hmm. Right. And you say that populism, again, in this theoretical framing, is neither good nor bad for democracy. Yeah. If you, um, if you keep democracy very limited, 
as I usually do, where democracy is popular sovereignty and, and, and majority rule, which means the people elect their leader by majority, then populism in theory is in line with that. However, if you see democracy broader as we really mm -hmm. normally do, which I call liberal mm -hmm. democracy or constitutional democracy, then majority rules combined with minority mm -hmm. rights, with separation of powers, things like that, rule of law, and there is an inherent tension with populism. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that liberal democracy is based on pluralism, on the mm -hmm. idea that there are different groups in society that are all legitimate and they just try to find some kind of consensus among them. Monism, the idea that there's just one group, one legitimate group, is the essence of populism. So there's a fundamental tension between liberal mm -hmm. democracy and populism, but not between populism and democracy. Right, right. And I want to I want to come back to that that tension. But you know, when populism is talked about in the media, it is often done in the same breath as things like authoritarianism and even fascism. And so I wonder if you could talk about those links, how how they come about and if this is, you know, how much is this just kind of the media throwing words around when the, the actual links might not be there in, in practice? Yeah, I think there is a natural kind of alliance between populism and nationalism in the sense that when you define the people on the basis of its self-image, you tend to come close to how the nation is defined on the self-image. That being said, not all populists are nationalists and certainly not all nationalists are populists. Um, authoritarianism depends a little bit on how it is used. If you use it as anti-democracy, then as said, in theory, populism is democratic. If you use it more in a socio-psychological sense of, of a, a hang towards order and the idea that chaos is, is, is problematic and that the state should really like enforce order, then that is a bit more of a natural ally for the simple reason that the distinction between that homogenous block of the people and the homogenous block of the elite is normative. And that means that the other one is not a legitimate actor. Moreover, the elite is seen as corrupt, corrupting our ways. And if that threat is so fundamental, then you might extend beyond like your regular means of disciplining. Now, fascism is theoretically a purely elitist ideology. It doesn't just see hierarchy between races, but also within the German people. Hitler was not just like everyone. He was superior to every other German. Elitism is essential to fascism in whatever form. And as a consequence, fascism and, pol and, and populism are to a certain extent um, <coughs> opposing views. That being said, fascism in the 1920s, 30s went through a so-called popular phase where it did use some kind of what we could perhaps call populist mm -hmm. rhetoric. But in essence, the system, both how it was uh, run and justified, was much more elitist than populist. Yeah. And it, it seems that, uh, you know, populism, at least in the past eight to ten years, has become ascendant and often aligned with the far right. So what is it about 
you know, kind of the far right ideology that 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 aligns so well with what you've described as the, the, the populist ideology. So I think that's a very important point. Um, both theoretically and historically, populism had left and right wing uh, variants in reality. And even at the turn of the century, there was significant left wing populism, particularly in some Latin American countries. Today, and pretty much since 2016, Brexit and Trump, mm. when we talk about populism, we actually talk about the far right. And, and that's why I'm less and less happy to talk about populism, because I think it has become increasingly used as a euphemism for the far right or for racism. Now, why is it mostly the right rather than the left at the moment that is populist? I think... First of all, within the more intellectual realm, as well as the official discourse, particularly within liberal democracies, it is relatively progressive. I'm not saying that countries are actually progressive in the way that they're governed, but the discourse tends to be. Um, and that means that the left tends not to be fundamentally ousted. The far right, although actually in terms of its ideas, not necessarily that far removed from how countries are being governed, um, are on the one hand treated by part of the establishment as outside of the realm, but also have created a, a kind of a self-victimization and they see themselves as being marginalized by the establishment. And that is in the U.S. even stronger than in other countries, but it has been around for a while. At the same time, what you see is the more the far right, particularly the radical right, is being mainstreamed, the less populist they are. And so a good example is the Sweden Democrats in Sweden, who are now supporting a minority government. About 10 years ago, they were strongly populist. The establishment went from left to right. But over the last couple of years, the right has embraced them. And so, of course, you're not going to, to pretty much bite the hand that's going to feed you. And so today, when they talk about the establishment, it's often the left. And you see that more that the radical right is, is kind of embraced by at least the right wing of the establishment, populism goes down. Hmm. We had Francis Fukuyama here uh, about a year ago, obviously one of the you know leading scholars on on liberalism, and you know I think in, in, in his most recent book he's kind of wrestling with this idea that you know liberalism will never be able to fully constrain populism or be able to constrain those kind of you know, far right anti democratic impulses. I guess I wonder what. You know how you see those two, and and whether there is more that the institutions and things that comprise liberal democracy, you know, could or or should be doing to try to constrain populism in some way to prevent it from kind of veering into the you know anti democratic space. So I've described populism as uh, an illiberal democratic response to undemocratic liberalism. What I mean by that is that. Populism is illiberal democracy. I've argued that it is democratic, but it has problems with the liberal part of liberal democracy, right? And particularly minority rights, rule of law, separation of powers. 
Now, what do I mean with undemocratic liberalism? Particularly in the heydays of neoliberalism, the Mm -hmm. 80s and the 90s, what we saw was a a, a by and large shrinking of the democratic Mm -hmm. space, mostly through privatization in the European context, also by pushing things up to the European Union. And all of that led to the situation in which a lot of policies are outside of the electoral realm. We cannot vote on public transport, for example, except for asking for the renationalization of public transport. Public transport is now a private business. And so it's not in the hands of the government, but that then also means it's not in the hands of the people. Now, that in itself is not undemocratic. And it's important to not just economic, but you can think about going further back, other liberal types of things, which is anti-discrimination laws or uh, the banning of the death penalty. Now, I'm not taking a normative position here, but these are pretty far-reaching decisions, which in many countries were not shared by a majority of the people. They were... They were put in a judicial realm or, or in an economic realm by people who are democratically elected. So pure in a formal sense, it was not undemocratic. However, in most cases, it was done without ever really making it part of the electoral process. And so if you get elected and then implement a policy you never talked about, and, and make sure that it's all done uh, and dusted before the next election, that goes against the spirit of democracy. And so a much of this pendulum swing mm-hmm. towards more liberalism at the expense of democracy was done without fundamental debate. And this applies in the European context to European immigra- uh, integration. Mm-hmm. Almost everywhere it applies to the issue of immigration. And they have all kind of other mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about populism in terms of, of supply and demand and, and one way to combat it, perhaps, or to keep it in check or, you know, reduce it in relation to in proportion to, to liberalism and, and liberal democracy is to decrease the populist demand. So is, is, is addressing some of these economic issues or kind of organizing it in this class based way an example of that? Yeah, partly. I, I argue that. Um and again, like for me, neoliberalism is not so much a, an economic system rather than a political ideology. And and the thing that a couple of decades of neoliberalism has done is has depoliticized and de-ideologized politics. Because in neoli- neoliberal ideology, it's all about the market. Right? And so politics is actually bad, stands in the way of efficiency. At the same time, ideology is denied in, in uh, neoliberalism. It denies to be an ideology itself, and it argues that's all about rationality and pragmatism. Now, the consequence, as I've said before, is that more and more of, of pretty important aspects of our life and I include public transport in that, for example, are put outside of the realm of politics. I think we need to take a lot of these things back. Mm -hmm. I think that the state should be responsible for things like public transport, for energy policy. Um, And as a consequence, it shouldn't 
it shouldn't privatize these um, and, and, and have a grip on that so that people can decide on that. So that's one part. By, de- by, by repoliticizing, like you, you increase the reach of politics and you get out of this Tina politics. There is no alternative where people say, well, yes, this is a problem, but that's outside of our realm because it's uh, globalization or the EU or the IMF, whatever. The second part is ideology. And my, my argument there is always like, if I give you $100, you will ask me, oh, why do you give that? If I say I want to, you will say thank mm-hmm. you. If I ask $100 of you, you will s- still ask me, like, why? Mm-hmm. And if I say because I want it, you will not give it to me. Now, we're in a, a, sen- a century of crises. Like with 9-11, we had the Great Recession, we had COVID, and now we have Ukraine-Russia. That means, together with all kinds of other things, that people get less and less, either objectively or they get less than they expected. That means that you have to have a story. And the story cannot be pragmatism. It cannot be there is no alternative. You have to argue, explain to them, you have to give this up now and this is your promised land, right? And that's what ideologies are about. It's about promised lands and it's about values. And I believe that that it's essential to do these two things together. And with that, it also means that we talk about different things. We have been talking about security, about identity, obsessively in most countries mm-hmm. over the last decades, in part as a consequence of the fact that mainstream parties converged mm-hmm. on neoliberal eco- economics, and so they couldn't talk about that. But if you look actually at what people care about in many countries, and particularly younger people, and importantly, gender difference, women, for women, immigration and security are not top issues. Healthcare, education, Housing is a major issue in many countries, right? If we talk about these issues, then the radical right, the populists are less central. They don't disappear. They can give a populist spin on climate change. They can give a populist spin on housing like, or a nativist spin on it. They can. But we shift the debate from them. We limit our agenda setting. And as long as we have a story, like... I think we can convince people. So that leads me to one last question. This could easily take us into a whole separate conversation, which unfortunately we don't have time to have. But thinking about that COVID example in the the American context, I you know I, I started thinking about the all the you know we had six weeks maybe of kind of national unity and we're all in this, and then states started going off, and we got to reopen, and the sort of the. You know, I think there was a perhaps a populist element to some of, of that rhetoric from Ron DeSantis and, and, and others. And so that leads me to a question about, you know, what what, if anything, should media who are covering these populist figures do differently? Are they giving them too much attention so that a lot of the policies you were just talking about don't come to light? Uh, are there other things about the way that this is all framed um, that it make progress problematic. Yeah, I'm going to upset some of your media mm-hmm. listeners now as well as some of my friends in the media, but I think particularly progressives should really stop looking at the media as an ally. The media is not part of the democratic um, structure. The media is part of the economic structure. Media is about making money. 
and they they want to sell stuff. And so we we can go on and on, and I've done this for, for decades, about how the media should cover this and that. But the media is going to cover things in the way that maximize their profit. That's just, that's the business model. And in the end, that's the only way they survive. Margins are small, so if they don't do it, they die. And I think that's that's the big problem. I mean, it, and it's it's institutional. I, I know a lot of journalists. They would love to write different mm-hmm. stories, but their editor tells them to write the next story about whatever outrageous thing Trump says. It is completely irrelevant what he says. He hasn't said or done anything in the last three, four years that fundamentally changes what we know about him. But these stories are read by us, the people, right? Whereas a really solid analysis of the housing situation is not read, right? And so we can look at the media, but I think we should look at ourselves. Like we reward like a structure, an infrastructure that benefits the populist. And that goes to the level of the newspaper I used to write for, The Guardian, like which, which has a long history of what I call far-right porn, like endless stories about irrelevant far-right with a big picture of a skinhead on it about they might be the next thing, right? And But they only write it because the Guardian reader eats it up. They love to be afraid of the far-right, right? And so why would we expect, like this is to a certain extent saying to your dealer, you should stop giving me heroin. Like why would the dealer stop? Like you should stop taking heroin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think... That is that is a good place to end. A good reminder for all of us uh, to resist those stories, as tempting as they may be. Kasmuda, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Jenna, for that really great interview. There were so many things that were especially helpful for me, and one I was thinking about. You know, why is this a particular moment where? Um, populism is ascendant on the right, and why we may not have seen that in you know century you know in centuries past, especially in the United States. And I think Kass does a really good job of talking about these two elements. He talks about the elites, and then he talks about the people, and he talks about this idea about the people being pure and homogenous. Um, and so that means that the people are a certain kind of people. It's not inclusive. It's actually exclusive. So let's say in William Jennings Bryan era or Andrew Jackson's era, we wouldn't expect a racial cleavage because Black folks and Native folks are not included in the polity. There's no need to exclude them. We can we can find some other uh, elite the people frame, whereas now race is very much a cleavage that um, folks can, that the people, the people can center themselves around and be exclusive around. So I do think that's a really interesting point because, you know, there's, you know, if you have an us by definition, no, I think that's a really good and important point. And and it kind of speaks to how populism is, is, distinctive now, right? Because you have, if you have an us, if you have a we, then you automatically have a they, you have a them. Mm -hmm. And who is the them? And, and 
you know, in populism, it's always, you know, an elite, but there's always somebody that's a threat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're right that that it wasn't racial for William Jennings Bryan and Huey Long or anybody else, Andrew Jackson, because because African-Americans and Native Americans weren't part of the polity. Right. right. And then the moment that you had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the mid 60s, boom, you have George Wallace, who was clearly a populist and mm-hmm. was clearly um, seeing the us as, you know, the good white people, the, the people of the heartland, whatever euphemism you want to use. Um, but the, the thing that I was thinking about when you were talking is Charles Coughlin, who was a, um, you know, a Catholic priest in Detroit in the 20s. Uh, and he was a raging anti-Semite. So one of the things, just to piggyback off that, that Cass mentions up front is that elites aren't always wealthy or or politically powerful, right? So he, you know, he makes it clear that, you know, t- typically when we think about elites, we think about the powers that be, but he also kind of lays this out, right? So this is why um, anti-Semites can say that Jews are elite or um, mm-hmm. racists can say that Black folks are elite or academics are elite or like black academics are elite because ostensibly these are people who are influencing culture and influencing um, the way that, you you know, uh, influencing uh, our values or our way of life. Um, And so in that way, you know, on the one hand, right, you can see how that group can be used as a tool. On the other hand, you can see how this can kind of be delusional on some level, mm-hmm. especially if the group that's the so-called elite um, is shifting culture. Culture does not often come with a, um, a a similar a similarly quick shift in, let's say, allocation of resources. So you know, like who's really being threatened, right? Uh, who's really being threatened? Who's really losing out? Um, but a, a populist can, especially, I think, the way that we see it now, that a populist can say that, you know, your way of life is changing and that you're not able to, your kids are going to go to school and learn that they're racist, you know, these kinds of mm-hmm. things. Um, when in fact, right, this has nothing to do with people's real material realities. Well, you know, the idea of democracy is simply majority rule, right? And if a populist is able to garner enough support, then they can basically do whatever they want within the context of democracy, right? But the reason you only hear liberal democracy is because a democracy without liberalism is a democracy that does not respect the rights of mm-hmm. the minority. It does not respect the rule of law. It does not respect um, the the procedures that are established to maintain those rights. So when you give, uh, when you when you say, "I um, am a beleaguered minority or a beleaguered majority being um, exploited by." this elite. Um, and we are the pure people and the other people are evil. Then I think it's 
pretty easy to justify, um, I mean, at minimum, restricting the rights of of uh, um, of the minority, right? And, you know, Orban in Hungary, he says, I want to create an illiberal democracy. I want to give mm-hmm. the power to the people, and I want to um, get rid of all these um, institutions that undermine their their um, their their expression, their pure democratic expression. We've done, and what Casa's uh, interview with, with Jenna shows is, a, this is an extremely important concept right now. B, mm-hmm. it's it is on the one hand a little woolly, but it's also has some precision, and it allows us to see expressions of it all over the world right now. And mm-hmm. so when I think anybody who listened to this podcast is going to say, oh, that that's populism. And that's mm-hmm. just what I said. And um, and so you see it as on the one hand, you know, kind of a completely legitimate democratic expression. And on the other hand, extremely dangerous. Right. Um, because once, you, you know, it's it's once you have an us then you have a them and it makes it very difficult to run a democracy that way. And especially when you think you are um, morally pure. So um, anyway, uh, I think there's a lot to chew on here and uh, I really appreciate uh, Kass coming to the, to the conference and, uh, and, and sitting down with Jenna. For Democracy Works, I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.